Hello, and welcome to the Her Head in Films podcast. I'm your host. My name is Caitlin. In this podcast, I share my personal musings on cinema. If you're new to the podcast, you might be wondering who I am. As I said, my name is Caitlin. I'm a writer. I'm a dreamer. I have a mad, passionate love for cinema, especially art house cinema and world cinema. Um, I love literature. I love art. I'm someone who's very curious about the world and I love learning. I love soaking up knowledge. And um, But one of my big passions is film. And so that's why I created this podcast. Um, I live in a rural area in the South, in the United States, and I I don't have an art house cinema where I live. I don't really, I barely have a bookstore, so I don't live in a place where I really have anyone to talk to about films and literature, and I do have a book podcast, which I have a link to it in the description of this episode. And you can follow that if it interests you. But, um, so this podcast is really an outlet for me to share my thoughts and feelings about films that I watch. And so, um, the title, if you're wondering, it comes from an email that I sent a friend a few years ago. I was sort of obsessed with films at the time, which I usually am. And I wrote in that email that my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. And so it was a phrase that really stuck with me and that came back to me when I started uh, thinking about doing this podcast. And so I thought that her head in films was a really great descriptor for the way that films sort of invade my brain. And they're all that I can think about sometimes. And um, I'm pretty much a self-taught cinephile. I don't have any kind of specialization in film. I don't have any kind of, um, you know, special knowledge. Or I'm not an academic. Um, I have a degree, um, a Bachelor of Arts degree in literature and in women's and gender studies. I don't have any kind of you know, special degree or anything in in cinema. Didn't take any film classes. Um, So I'm pretty much someone who is learning as I go. I'm self-taught in many ways. And um, I'm learning just through watching things and and, um, watching different directors and different films. And so that's sort of been my education is just experiencing films and watching them. And Um, So, yeah, this podcast is more about the personal. There are really great podcasts out there that will go into more depth about the history of cinema and and different things like that. I don't really offer that. I just offer um, a podcast about films filtered through my personal lens and how I feel and what I think. So that's the introduction. Um, (laughs) That's what I would like to tell you. And today I'm just going to go ahead and dive right in to what I want to talk about, which is two films about Jean-Dominique Bobby, and I'm also going to talk about Bobby's memoir. Um, So the two films, wait, I have my notes out.
yeah, and I just want to dig right in. Sometimes I'll talk about more general things at the beginning of the podcast, but I have so much that I want to say about these films that I really just want to just dig right in. So, um, the first film that I'm going to talk about is called Locked In Syndrome. It's directed by Jean-Jacques Benix, um, and it came out in 1997. And then the second film I'm going to talk about is called The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, and it's by Julian Schnabel, and it came out in 2007. And I will talk a little bit about Bobby's memoir, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. So these two films were made ten years apart, and they are about the same man, Jean-Dominique Bobby. He was an editor at um, Elle magazine in France. In 1995, when he was 43 years old, he suffered a devastating stroke, and he was plunged into what is commonly known as locked-in syndrome. It's a very rare condition of complete paralysis. It paralyzes the body, but unlike maybe other conditions, it does not harm the brain. Some people will go into some people who have strokes, you know, will go into a vegetative state and the brain is pretty much gone. But with locked in syndrome, the person is paralyzed, but they're still conscious, they're still able to think. They just can't really communicate or move. And that's why it's called locked in syndrome. Uh, Bobby died two years later. Um, Two years after suffering his stroke, he died in 1997, and he died shortly after his memoir, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, was published. So, we have two films that were made about Bobby, and um, Bobby's story is very unique. It's very interesting. It's, you know, you don't come across stories like this every day. And so his story has really made an impact on me. And that's why I wanted to talk about these films and about his memoir. Because it's just been with me for so long. I mean, for a decade now. Um, ever since I saw The Diving Bell and the Butterfly in probably 2007. So I think his story is worth talking about. And I. I think it's worth delving into the cinematic depictions of his condition and of, you know, illness and disability and things like that. So I'm going to talk about locked-in syndrome, which I was fortunate to watch a few days ago, and it's by Jean-Jacques Benix, or Benix, and it came out in 1997. So, this documentary is interesting. It it takes us into the hospital um, where Bobby lives after his stroke. It's a hospital that is situated by the, the sea in, in France. I think it's called um, Berks-sur-Mer. And it's, it's a hospital where, uh, you know, people with strokes and other paralysis and other... Um, physical issues go. At that hospital, Bobby is taken care of by various nurses. He has speech therapy. Um, I guess, well, I should have mentioned this earlier. The way that Bobby wrote his memoir 
was even though his whole body was paralyzed the only thing he was still able to move was his left eyelid and so he had a woman her name was Claude and um, she, I think she was with a publishing house she was and um, and she came in and every day she would sit with him and she would go through the alphabet and when he wanted a particular word he would blink his left eyelid and then she would transcribe it and in that way that's how they wrote the diving bell and the butterfly so it's this it was this very painstaking process but it was able you know it was able to be written what's interesting is but is that Benix is known as an important director of cinema de look and that was an audacious and colorful though short-lived movement in French cinema in the 1980s um, Luc Besson was part of it and um, and so was Benix and some other French directors he made films like Diva which I haven't seen yet but I want to see and Betty Blue which I have seen um, which is a good film and so he made these very colorful vibrant films in the 1980s but with this film in particular in the 1990s he started to go more into documentary in the 90s and um and I would say this film Locked in Syndrome is much more somber much more solemn in many ways and you really would not think that it's by the same director who did Betty Blue for instance but the documentary it does have a whimsical quality about it even maybe an impressionistic quality um, in the way that Benix films the hallways of the hospital at night when they're empty or when he shows a little girl playing with a wind-up toy or he shows Bobby's daughter I think it's Bobby's daughter it's a little girl anyways um, doing cartwheels on the beach as he looks on in his wheelchair Bobby had two children he had a daughter and he had a son and um, so I think that's her on the beach but so this documentary is it's very somber in some ways it it shows Bobby in his hospital bed it shows him in his wheelchair when he's sort of sitting by the sea but then it has these more playful moments as I said like um, or I guess more poetic moments and like the wind-up toy and the little girl doing cartwheels on the beach and and so there's a lightness to it as well and and it also shows Claude um, uh, with Bobby and how she would say the alphabet and he would uh, blink his eye and he would um, he would communicate in that way and so you sort of see the process of how the book is written and then there are passages from the book that are quoted like the beginning and and so it's a very straightforward film there's not a lot of bells and whistles it's it's pretty straightforward and to the point as a documentary I think but it's always very interesting to see the real subject which is Bobby 
and um, I had actually not seen this film before. I'd seen The Diving Bell and the Butterfly about 10 years ago, and um, so it was actually very interesting if, if you're someone who's read the memoir or if you've seen Diving, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly by Julian Schnabel then to see locked in syndrome is actually really interesting because you're seeing Bobby with your own eyes and you're seeing the the environment in which he lived and it's a film that focuses solely on his life at that moment in the hospital it doesn't really go beyond that it doesn't talk about his life before or show many of the people that were in his life before um, so as a but as a document of Bobby's experience and his time in Berkshire Mayor, it's very valuable, I think, and and it shows him in the flesh and what he looked like and what his environment looked like and and so I think it's really valuable in that way as as a document, you know, of, of his life at that time. And so I'm I'm really glad I watched it because Bobby is someone who has interested me for years now and um, his story is just so compelling um, because of the locked-in syndrome because he could only communicate through his left eyelid and, and to see him actually doing that is very interesting. It's one thing to read the memoir. It's one thing to see a film, you know, a cinematic representation of what he did. Um, but it's sort of a different thing to actually see him really doing that and blinking his eye and and attempting to communicate with the world. And it's actually very moving to see him and. Um, so I'm I'm glad I watched the documentary. It's about 27 minutes. So it's a short documentary, but it is I think it's it's packed with a lot of uh, you know, important information. And so because I watched the Benix film, I decided that I really wanted to revisit the diving bell and the butterfly and it's it's actually interesting that that I did it this year because if you think about it with Bobby having died in 1997 this year 2017 marks 20 years since his passing and uh, you know 20 years since his death so it's actually sort of fitting to revisit the diving bell and the butterfly for that reason I mean I didn't I wasn't consciously aware of that but um but it's actually pretty fitting that I did revisit it so I went back and I watched the diving bell and the butterfly tonight and it stars Matthew Amalric Amalric I wish I was better at pronouncing things. I mean, I went and looked at an interview of him pronouncing it, and I was like, I'm going to do this. And then I get here doing the podcast, and I get nervous. Matthew Amalric. And it was directed by Julian Schnabel. And it's on Netflix. I mean, I'm in the United States, and it's on uh, Netflix in the U.S. right now. And um, so... 
if you are interested in the film, you can watch it on Netflix. So this film is, it's one of those films that sort of, I don't want to say it's like a defining film in my life, but it's an impactful film and it's an important film. I mean, I still remember saying it and it stayed with me for years and it got me interested in Bobby and it, and it inspired me to read Bobby's memoir, which is really good and I might talk a little bit about it. So I want to say, I'm pretty sure that I saw this film in, a, in the theater and um, I was probably, it came out in 2007, right? So I was 18. I was about 17 or 18 years old. And where I lived, where I used to live, um, I don't live there anymore. Um, there used to be this movie theater that was nearby. And it was really cheap. It was like a dollar or two dollars to get in. And they would show foreign films sometimes. I got really lucky for a while. And they showed all kinds of foreign films at that movie theater. Um, I got to see Pan's Labyrinth, I got to see The Lives of Others, and I'm pretty sure I got to see The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. I want to say that I did see it at that theater, and uh, I might have to ask my mom, because <laughs> I used to, we used to go together to the movie. She didn't care for the foreign films, so I kind of had to drag her to them, <laughs> and she'd like fall asleep or whatever, but you know. I still got to see my foreign films, which I love, so, um, <laughs> so, um, the theater, it was cheap because they didn't get the new releases. They didn't get a film, like, the week that it was released or the week that it came out. They would get the film several months later, and so I think that's why they were able to be so cheap. And of course, you know, concessions were still expensive and stuff, but I mean, it, it was pretty rare to have a movie theater where you could get in for a couple of dollars. And so I was really lucky to have that for a certain period of time. And, and they showed foreign films for a little while, and then eventually they basically stopped. And they were really only showing like the blockbusters. It was really sort of devastating. But um, for a little while, I was really lucky to have that experience and I really do cherish it. So this film for me is it's tied to a lot of good memories and difficult memories because in 2007 that would have been a year after my father's death. My father died in 2006 and that was a really devastating experience as I've talked about on this podcast a lot. <laughs> um, I do tend to talk about it a lot because because I was 16 when it happened and it was catastrophic and it was very painful and a lot of what I go through even now 11 years later is tied to his death you know the the anxiety the depression I deal with the chronic pain, the things that I endure have a lot to do with my father's death because it was so 
damaging to me and it was just so it shattered me and so um after his death I, I my mom and I we sort of turned to movies for comfort and so like I said we would go to that cheap movie theater and I would see foreign films and I, I'd also see like maybe comedies and stuff like that it wasn't always foreign films but we we saw a lot of movies together and cinema was sort of it was a comfort through that grief and maybe I'll try to talk about that more in future podcasts or something um so this film I watch it you know like a year after my father father's death so it it's it's a film about mortality it's a film about the body's degradation and the and it it it's so much about human vulnerability and human fragility but it's also about cherishing life appreciating life so there's a lot of themes in it that were very I think resonant for me at that time in my life and um and I think they still resonate in many ways so this film is intertwined with uh, with very specific memories for me and it does hold a great deal of meaning for me because of that it's tied to this time and place in my life that were very intense I mean even now I can I can sort of feel myself back in that darkened theater and and um I can feel the effect that that film had on me and and um I mean that's sort of interesting about movies and and songs tend to be that way too is you know when you hear a certain song it will sort of transport you back into a moment in your life and sometimes films can have that effect too where you know I rewatched the film tonight and it's just so strange to think of myself watching this film 10 years apart I mean I may have watched it in in the interceding years I don't know I can't particularly remember if I did see it before now if I did watch it again but um it's so strange to think that 10 years have gone by you know and in that 10 years so much has happened and there's been more loss I mean 2007 was the year that I lost my grandmother too so I, I can't believe I didn't think of that it was a time of great loss for me and then a few years later my uncle died so you know it's those 10 years of a lot has happened a lot you know a few good things but it's mainly been a lot of pain and a lot of loss and it's like it hasn't stopped <laughs> I feel like I, I went through things as a teenager you know within three years I went to three funerals I went to my father's I went to my grandmother's and I went to went to my uncle's and that was by the time I was 20 years old so <laughs> it's just a lot happened within a certain span of time and it absolutely sort of debilitated me in many ways the pain and the fear and the and all of that and and so 
you just think of everything that's happened in those 10 years between watching this film and then watching it again and it's just sort of shocking I think but um but I think that's why I have more of an emotional reaction to this film is because it is tied to those moments in my life and in a certain time in my life and so it's it's fascinating that Schnabel even attempted this film because how do you take a film how do you make a film about someone trapped in their body there's not a lot of action in the film there's not a lot that happens you're trying to convey a very internal struggle of a man who cannot move he cannot speak he <laughs> all these things that films depend upon which is movement and sound and and how people react to one another and interact none of that is available to you so you have to be quite creative in how you tell this story and Schnabel was able to do that I mean I don't love his personality as a person you know Julian Schnabel I don't know a ton about him but I do think that he did a really good job with this film and he was quite innovative and quite creative with the way that he told the story so as the film begins Schnabel begins with the perspective of Bobby and from the perspective inside Bobby's uh, consciousness and we are really seeing through Bobby's one functioning eyelid and um, we see how his entire world has been shrunk down to this one space this one view through his eye it's blurry it's out of focus it melts in and out of clarity just as Bobby's consciousness would as he's coming out of a coma and from what I understand Schnabel devised some kind of thing to make to make it look like that to I mean there's even blinks there's even what you think of as blinks from an eye he's trying to make you believe that you are in the vantage point of Bobby and seeing through that one eye and so there's even blinking there's you know when he closes his eyes you can see the light stream in through the skin you know in that redness that you'll get that red color that you'll see when light is streaming through your eyelids so it's there's the blurriness and so it's very it feels very accurate I mean you really do feel like you're inside Bobby's consciousness and that's what Schnabel wants to do he wants to immerse us in that consciousness and make us see or make us feel uh, what it's like for Bobby to wake up in this new world to wake up to this discovery that he can't speak he can't move he can't walk he can't communicate he's completely paralyzed and yet he has all his mental faculties he can think inside his head he can make jokes he can he can talk he can think he, he not he can't talk <laughs> in his head you know he can 
he can remember, he can imagine. So he still has all his mental uh, faculties, but he is cut off and he is completely locked in. And there's uh, definitely a claustrophobia about it as we do see the world through that soul eyelid that periodically blinks. And I got to thinking this really is a very vivid and maybe even extreme way to create empathy and identification to put us in the mind and body of another person who's going through an extreme experience. You just, you know, we always say, oh, put yourself in somebody else's shoes. You know, in this instance, you know, Schnabel is trying to put us into somebody else's, like, eye. <laughs> it's it's very intense. It's very intense. And yet there's something very, like, beautiful and poetic about it, too, with that blurriness. And it almost comes off a little bit dreamy at times. Schnabel, unlike Benix, is able to use art and fiction to take us into Bobby's life. He takes us where Benix cannot take us with his documentary. Um, because of the doc the limits of the documentary form, Benix can only remain outside of Bobby's consciousness. He films the corridors, the sea. Um, he films Bobby being taken care of and and blinking uh, with Claude, but he can't venture much farther than that. Whereas with fiction and with uh, feature film filmmaking, Schnabel is able to go deeper, I think. And I got to thinking about how, I wonder if this film resonated with me because from an early age, probably around like 13, my dad got, got sick and my dad struggled with a lot of health problems in the last few years of his life. Even though he was young, he was only 45 when he passed away. But from a very early age, because of seeing my father struggle with his health and go through health issues, it made me very sensitive, I think, to the precariousness of our bodies, to the vulnerabilities of our bodies, to the ways in which our bodies can malfunction, can break down, can... Um, just stop working the way that we want them to work and I think that's definitely a theme in this film and it, it's something that I think that makes the viewer reflect uh, reflect on that it's something that any of us it could happen to any of us Bobby is driving his car and he has a stroke there's no there's no explanation for why he has this stroke the doctors can't tell him why locked-in syndrome happened to him. It's a mysterious condition that doctors don't fully understand. Every day, people have things like this happen to them. Aneurysms, you know, very sudden, catastrophic things that 
nobody can predict, nobody can see coming. And it's scary how vulnerable our bodies are, how we have no defense against these things, and how out of control we are, really, when it comes to our health and when it comes to our bodies. And that is a subject that I think a lot of people fear. A lot of people don't want to talk about mortality. They don't want to talk about vulnerability. They don't want to talk about how we are all susceptible to ill health. Everybody wants to think they're going to be able-bodied forever. But most of us are going to experience health issues over the course of our lives. No matter what we do, you can do everything right. You can run every day and, and eat the right foods and not smoke and not drink and stay away from all the bad stuff and bad things can still happen to you and it's random and it doesn't always make sense and it's terrifying. And so you see Bobby is is thrown into this situation that he has no control over and it's so sudden and he can't make sense of it. Um, but he still is trying to communicate through it with his eyelid. And you definitely see that need to communicate. I mean, he certainly didn't have to write his memoir. He didn't have to blink his eyelid. He, he could have definitely not done that. But as a writer, as someone who worked for a magazine, he obviously felt compelled to say something to write, to communicate. Um, of course, that doesn't necessarily change what he's going through. His body is still paralyzed, even though um, he uses his imagination. And a diving bell, some people may not know what it is. I didn't know what it was when I first um, saw the film and read the memoir. But a diving bell is like this suit of metal that people used to wear to go to the bottom of the ocean. It's this very, you've probably seen them without knowing what they're called, but it's like this big metal suit that people wore so that they could go to like the bottom of the ocean. And so the locked-in syndrome makes him feel like he's in the diving bell. But the butterfly is his imagination and his ability to think about things that transport him. He'll think about places that he's traveled or places that he's read about in books. He'll think about really great meals that he once had. He'll think about his different memories and that allows him to continue living. So through his imagination he becomes the butterfly and he becomes able to escape I guess sort of the pain sometimes. But unfortunately, even with imagination, it doesn't change it. He still has to endure it. And his memoir, to me, has always felt sort of like this secret document that was sort of smuggled out of some infernal place. Like, it makes me think about the prisoners who escaped the Nazi death camps and they tried to warn the world about what was happening. And they would write down messages and they would try to let the rest of the world know what was what was going on in these camps. 
And in this way, I think that Bobby's memoir is like this secret document, this thing, these words that he's able to smuggle out of his body and out of out of his situation. And I think maybe Bobby's trying to warn all of us that life is fleeting and painfully, painfully unpredictable. A man full of life and vigor is reduced to just being in a hospital bed um, and blinking one eye to send this sort of last message before his impending death. Um, so this is a very sort of vital story, I think. And if it doesn't move you, I don't know what will. I mean, even if maybe you don't like the film, because everybody has their different opinions, but the memoir itself is really moving. And it's quite an accomplishment that he was able to write it at all. And if you think of all the different art forms out there, only writing can do that. Someone who's trapped in their body and can only communicate with their eyelid can't can't film, can't do a film. They can't paint a picture. They can't record a song. I mean, of all the art forms, writing lends itself to that sort of predicament where he can't express himself in any other way except language. And I think that's very powerful. And I'm always very interested in in like the power of language in people's lives and how language can become a form of salvation. And you think of like, for instance, the Holocaust memoirs that people wrote. They wrote those because they needed to express what had happened to them. They needed to warn the world. They had something to say. And I think in a similar way with Bobby's predicament, it's unique and it's painful. I mean, he finds a way to cope with it and to get through it. But it's very difficult. It's very difficult to be paralyzed. It's very difficult. I mean, and in spite of those things, he's still able to write and create something. And I think that's pretty extraordinary. And I think that can really be a reminder to us about the power of language, the power of writing. And you may not have locked in syndrome, but you may be going through a difficult time in your life, or you may be going through a really hard experience. But writing could be something that's very therapeutic and something very healing in a way for some people. And some people do use it for that. And there's a reason, because <laughs> language is something that's easily accessible. You don't need any kind of special tools. You just need a pen and pen and paper, um, and it can be very helpful. And and um, and thankfully, Bobby was able to write this memoir and to really share his story. I'm just I'm looking at my notes seeing what else I want to say this is a powerful film about nostalgia and memory um, there are flashbacks in the film some of the film we are inside Bobby's eye I guess you could say and then other times it's it's a more conventional film where you will see Bobby like at a photo shoot or you'll see him with his children or 
you'll see him sh uh, shaving his father. There's a really poignant scene that I'll talk about um, where he's shaving his father and you'll see him on a trip to Lord with his girlfriend that he took a few years prior. So you're not in his body the whole time. There are times when you see him as you would regularly see an actor in a film. Um, but it's really about memory and how his memories are what sustain him through the pain of the present moment. And in his memoir, which I reread tonight as well, because it's very short, probably took me an hour to maybe an hour and a half or two hours. It's a very uh, short memoir. And he talks about remembering taking a bath. And he writes, Rarely do I feel my condition so cruelly as when I am recalling such pleasures. So at the same time, even though remembering can be a comfort and it can be something that brings him joy, it can also bring a lot of pain because you contrast, you compare and contrast what you had in the past and what you have in the present. And memories can be very painful and they can really activate a certain depth of sadness, I think. Because you think about what you've lost, you think about what you no longer have. And even though remembering it is is comforting, because you did have it at one time, it just sort of amplifies the the difficulty of your present situation. I think Schnabel brings a very unique visual language to a unique story. And um, as I said, he was daring to make the film this way, to, to try to go into Bobby's consciousness and even, you know, set up the blinking. And it, it feels very realistic, as I said earlier. And I wondered myself if maybe him coming from a painting background and him being a painter possibly gave him that audacity that he doesn't necessarily identify solely as a filmmaker. He's someone who's outside filmmaking a bit. He's a bit of an outsider, I would say. And so I wonder if that gave him a more creative approach to the subject matter. And I wonder if maybe another director would have tried to film it in a more conventional manner, whereas I felt like Schnabel was trying to sort of push the form and push the technology in a in order to tell the story in a more um, creative way. So I think if anything the film does have a creative and innovative aspect to it because of the point of view that Schnabel takes. Now I have not seen a film do that. I haven't seen every film that's ever been made so there could be a film out there that's already done that but I did think it was a creative way to approach the subject I mean for me a film like this it really goes beyond critical reviews or other people's opinions I mean I don't know how other people see this film I don't know if it affects them the same way that it affects me 
but all I can say is that it did have an impact on me. A powerful aspect of the film is really this bifurcation that takes place and how Schnabel is able to represent this separation between who Bulby is inside, his memories, his jokes, the things he thinks in his head, and how he is seen from the outside. Basically this man lying motionless in a hospital bed, blinking one eye. You know, how do you reconcile those two things? And there's a point at which Bulby sees his reflection um, in like a, a plate of glass and he's just shocked. He's like, is that me? And there's this disconnect between who he is inside and who he is outside. And yeah, I think that's sort of a bifurcation that happens for all of us, that we all are like, we all have our own consciousness and our own subjectivity and our own point of view. And we are this certain person inside our skin, inside our own brains and our own minds. And then there's who we are as people see us from the outside. And you can never get inside another person's world, another person's mind. And I mean, I think part of art's function is that it's trying to translate that inner world and that inner life to other people. I mean, for me it is. When I'm writing, when I'm uh, creating something, I'm trying to translate, transmit this inner world that I have and what's inside of me. I'm trying to to transport some of that outside of me to share with other people. And so this film is so graphically shows that disconnection between what's inside and what's outside. How we view the world and experience the world and how the world sees us and views us. And how sometimes those two things often do not do not connect do not reflect each other properly and are often very different there are discrepancies between bobby's real life and the film um of course i did say earlier that the film uses fiction to show certain truths it uses fiction i think to tell a larger story. So what are we to make of these discrepancies? The biggest one is the way in which Bobby's girlfriend is portrayed. And this is this is dishonest in, in many ways. And it's a bone of contention for Bobby's own friends. Um, if you've seen the film then you know that there is a, a blonde woman played by Emmanuel Seigneur. I think that's how you pronounce it. And she plays a woman named Celine. And she is the mother of um, Bobby's children. Um, he, he did have a woman that he had his two children with. I, I can't remember her real name. It's not Celine. 
I don't think it's Celine. They were never married, though, and they were not together when he had his stroke. At the time he had his stroke, he was with a woman named Florence. And Florence is represented by a character in the film named Inez. And Inez doesn't visit him in the hospital. She's not able to. She calls on the phone. So what the film does is that it pretends like the mother of Bobby's children was the primary caretaker and was the primary support in Bobby's life. This is not true. The, the mother of his children was not really part of his life when he was in the hospital and she wasn't there when he died. Who was there was his girlfriend Florence played the, a character named Inez in the film. Florence was there every day. She was by his side. Um, she was there when he died I believe and yet the film for some reason nobody knows portrays her as not as as though she was not there and she was unable to come and see him in the hospital so this portrayal of Florence so upset Bobby's friends at Elle magazine in France that they would not screen the film and they would not review it so all of this story is told in an article in the Guardian which I will put in the description it's really unclear why Schnabel did this nobody knows I don't see I, the only thing I can think of maybe is that it's easier for it to be the mother of his children because then you can have the scenes with the children if that makes sense so if you make the if you make her the main caregiver then she can come with the kids and then there's scenes of him being with his children that's all I can think I don't know but it's once again it's it's a film based on Bobby there's a lot of factual stuff in there but then there's some things that are not so factual and you never know with why writers or filmmakers take these creative licenses I'm not sure but I, I just wanted to make you aware of the controversy because there are people who were upset about it there were people that knew Bobby and did not like the way his girlfriend Florence was portrayed because she was there every day and she did love him and she did care about him whereas the mother of his children was not there very often and didn't didn't act as that support system at all uh, whereas she did she would drive like several hours several times a week to go and see him and to be with him so I did felt it feel at times that the film um, that women in the film were very sexualized and they seemed to only be there as props as something beautiful to look at you know all the therapists that work with Bobby are very beautiful and um, some of the flashbacks are him with like previous girlfriends and and things like that and so women are sort of reduced to their sexuality and their sexual attractiveness and um, I mean that is a part of the film I don't particularly like that aspect of the film but um, but it's there I mean I don't think you can really deny it that the women are kind of there for their sexual attract attractiveness and 
I mean, Claude, who helps him with the letters and with transcribing, um, maybe there's a deeper connection there and she's not quite as sexualized. But I did feel like several of the film, several of the women kind of were. I mean, should this matter when you're evaluating the film as a work of art? I mean, I think the portrayal of women's important. But when it comes to the measure to which the girlfriend is included in the film, I mean, I don't know if that if that affects other people. I thought it was an interesting story and I thought it was an interesting aspect of the film I, because I wasn't aware of it at all. So I didn't know. I mean, I leave you to decide that for yourself. Um, I mean, it bothers me a little bit. I don't totally understand it, but I mean, it is part of the film, but I mean, I still think the film is very powerful and it, it definitely has a beauty and an intensity about it. And every film is going to have its flaws. So. And I think the final aspect of the film that I would like to talk about is, um, is sort of Schnabel's stated reason for making the film. There's a really interesting moment, and it, well, the whole interview is very interesting that Schnabel did with Charlie Rose in 2007 while he was promoting the film. And I would say that it's an interview that's really stayed from stayed with me for I guess like a decade now. And um so this is the exchange. So this is what Schnabel says. He said I'm not scared to die anymore. And one of the reasons, one of the reasons why I made the, this film is because my father, who was 92, was terrified of death. And he was stuck inside of his body. And so the idea is not to be stuck inside of your body. And Charlie Rose says, But so how did making the movie get you eliminate your fear of death? Julian Schnabel, By making the present more satisfying, and I think what happens when people go see the movie, people come, yeah, I went out of the movie, I grabbed my kids, I hugged my children, or I did this. And Charlie Rose says, things are precious. And so Schnabel directly says, I made this film because my father was terrified of death and he was stuck inside of his body. And that always stayed with me that he really made the film because his father was scared of death and so I think he wanted to directly confront the subject of death so that he himself would not fear death as much as his father did and so seeing that interview and it could have even been that interview that got me to see the film I'm not totally sure I mean I'm sure I probably saw that interview before the film came to the theater where I lived so I'm I'm pretty sure that probably got me interested in it so I saw that interview you know a year after my own father's death and so it was something that always stayed with me that he made the film out of this desire to to reconcile his fear of death or to diminish that fear in some way and 
that's what the film is about. The film is about life. It's about living. It's about appreciating life. It's about affirming life. And I think that's why it is so moving for people. It's about these small little moments. You know, when the film opens and you're from Bobby's perspective, you see like roses on a table. You see the curtain blowing in the wind. And then when you watch the rest of the film, it's really punctuated with just these small moments of beauty. Whether it's Bobby in his wheelchair looking at the at the sea and at the waves crashing or when he's thinking about a trip that he took with his girlfriend to Lourdes, um, you know, the holy place in France, and there's a shot of her hair blowing in the wind, or, the ch or his children playing on the beach. It's really a film about someone who, in a second, lost almost everything. He doesn't get to eat. You know, he has, like, a feeding tube. He doesn't get to move. He doesn't get to do anything. And so when he loses all of that, that is when he finally sees how precious all those things were. And so when he goes back in his memories, he thinks of eating, you know, of just something small like that that we do every day. We eat. <laughs> Or when he's looking at the window, the light streaming in the window. Or he's thinking of his girlfriend's hair blowing in the wind. Or he's watching his child play on the beach. These are small moments. But life is made of them. Life is made of these small, ordinary moments that we don't always notice and we don't always appreciate until we don't have them anymore. Until something happens and we lose them or we're unable to experience them and I think when you go through a health scare or you go through health issues I myself deal with chronic pain my health I mean for 10 years now my health has just been horrible and all the time I think about when I was younger I think about when I was oh, 10, 11, 12 you know, before my dad got sick, before my dad died, before my own health started to deteriorate, I think of those things. I think of when I was able to just do what I wanted and my body would let me do basic things. My body would let me do the things that I wanted to do. And it wasn't such a struggle to live. It wasn't so exhausting it, it wasn't so painful to be alive I, I think of those times in my life because they are comforting but if, as for Balby they're also very painful because they remind me of what I no longer have and what I may never have again so this film is one that when you walk out of the theater when you turn the computer off if you watch it on Netflix on your laptop it makes you look at life differently it makes you appreciate you know the light streaming through the trees birds chirping in the morning the dew on the grass these small little things that maybe you you never noticed or you forgot to notice or or you just were never able to properly appreciate 
it makes you think about how everything can be gone in a second everything can change and that's terrifying and you have no control over it just like Bobby didn't have any control over it so what do you do I mean the only thing you can do is to just do your best to just do the best you can and you know it's it's very moving and very poignant when Bobby talks about the last time he saw his father his father's like 92 years old and his father's still alive when Bobby has this stroke and he just thinks about shaving him he, he shaved his father you know he lathered the um, the cream and he put it on his father's face and and he shaved him and in the film Bobby's father is played by the legendary Max von Sydow who is known for his films with Ingmar Bergman and also other directors and it's such a moving scene the, the, the that's what Bobby remembers he just remembers shaving his father it was an ordinary day and yet that was the last time he saw his father and he can't see his father because his father is 92 years old and lives like on the fourth floor of an apartment and he's not in great health and so one day his father calls Bobby at the hospital and um, and he talks about how both of them are trapped that he is trapped in his apartment because of his ill health and his age and Bobby is trapped in his body because of the locked-in syndrome and the stroke and so it's something that sort of connects these two men that and it reminds us that all of us or many of us sometimes are locked in in different ways that you might be locked into your apartment for a reason or you might feel locked inside your body or trapped in your body there's a full range of, of human experience you know and and some of us do feel trapped and um and it's, it's a very moving scene and Max von Sydow does a really great job he doesn't even have that big of a role in the film but it's very moving and it's it's very poignant and um, it's it's yet another reminder of of the body's deterioration of how vulnerable we are and how your health is not promised it's not something that's promised and when you are in good health it's something that you tend to take for granted and you don't realize that you've taken it for granted until you don't have it anymore until your health is bad and you are struggling and and um it's a very difficult experience to live with it really is and so but um you just do your best just like Bobby did you know Bobby did his best to survive and he wrote his memoir and and um but he did die in 1997 and um, but I mean he left behind a document and he left behind his story that continues to be shared through um, through Schnabel's film and through Ibenix's film and through the memoir and his story continues and it's had an, a profound impact on me and um so 
it, especially the diving bell and the butterfly the film that film had a huge impact on my life you know I experienced it when I was 17 or 18 years old and and you know a decade later it still has has sort of a hold on me and and Bobby is someone that I I just come back to because I think his story is so extraordinary so I think I've definitely said everything I want to say about these two films and the memoir and of course I recommend all of it if, if you're interested in the story and um, it's certainly especially the diving bell and the butterfly I mean both the book and the Julian Schnabel film they they are life affirmative you know life affirming and um, I think they will make you more grateful and more appreciative of what you have and of the small moments in life that can hold great beauty um, so I think that's where I will stop so I thank you for listening and um, until next time keep uh, until next time keep watching films and um, I will I will try to get another episode out when I can but I really do appreciate you listening and I do appreciate your support so thank you very much bye for now <laughs>